Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 8th of the 1st. Should I introduce the date before I introduce you, Michael? Which do you think is more important, you or the day it is? I don't think either are particularly important, Gary. You're probably right. Anyway, today there are a number of things to talk about, as there are most days. Kind of thought you'd ask me what there was to talk about there, Michael. I was just about to ask you, uh, were you expect, were waiting for me to agree with you? Yes, Gary, there are many things to talk about on many days. Didn't you do improv? Didn't anyone ever tell you the importance of saying yes? <laughs> the only thing I remember from improv, which is, you know, the, the only thing that you can say about improv is that it's not mime, is that you never say no, which I suppose is, comes close to always saying yes. I did see a friend of mine who just never, ever got the point of improv and used to regularly say no, which was one of the most joyful experiences you could have as an audience in a classroom. And this deathly silence and three people looking frustratedly at this man. And you could see them thinking, can we just hit him? Can we just hit him now? Actually, you speaking of mime reminds me of the major problem with uh, Plato's story of the Ring of Gygus. Oh, God, of course it would. Yeah, I can see the connection. I mean, you get a ring turns you invisible at will, and your first thought is not to beat a mime to death in front of an audience? <laughs> That's just not how society works. Not a fan of the mime, Gary. But I'm sure it's like everything else. Somebody will come along and say, you know what, it's just you haven't seen a good mime. To which I will always answer, has anyone? So a good mime is like true communism. Well, I suppose the thing is, you might find true communism in heaven. You won't find a mime there. Strong feeling on mimes. Moving on from that to issues of some sort of political significance. We're not going to talk about vaccines today because we talked about vaccines uh, the last episode and I spent most of my day today going through the vaccine uh, delivery figures and just working myself up. And I don't really want to touch on it again. Suffice it to say that if we are to hit this week's target of vaccination, which is 35,000 people, the day this podcast goes up Friday... We will have to increase our, our daily vaccination rate by about 850% of what it has been so far this week, which we won't do and we'll fail gloriously. I'm also going to include a uh, link to a graph. It is from the official vaccine rollout plan, and it is the um, assumed vaccine availability for distribution, as in how many vaccines will be available for the country over time. And I will put it up in full, just so you can look at it. Because there's not a single fucking number on it. And it it itself says in brackets, illustrative. As in, this is not a chart, this is a graphic, this may not be real. I just want you to see it, so you can know. Well, yeah, and I, ju I just wanted to, and I know I, we won't stick on this, but I just wanted just to say, one of the things that everybody is saying in... In that awful cliche which seems to become derigore along with hot takes and virtue signalling, pulling on the green jersey, right? What the private hospitals have just been told to do by the head of the HSE. So everybody, we have to get behind it. There, everybody, Everybody's doing a great job. It's fantastic. And if you talk about, oh, Denmark did 50,000 in a week and Israel is going to have vaccinated everybody by tomorrow at lunchtime well you see there's all sorts of reasons for that and it's all about states and armies and war and organizations i just wanted to point out just so if we want to take pears and pears and oranges and oranges our rate uh, of vaccination 
for per 100 people, right? Just to compare it with another country famed for its organisational ability and capacity to roll out large-scale plans. Italy. Oh. I- Italy, Gary. Italy is at 0. 0.51. 0. 0.08. Ireland. Italy, 0. 0.51. Now, I can't do them. You can do the maths for me there, right? But is that... Uh, Six, 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 a little bit more than say six times harder. I think they started on around the 28th or 29th of December. Jesus, to, to be beaten by the like, that's not even a bar, that's like stumbling over fucking pavement. You know, I just wanted to context because you can talk to me, it's actually better than Germany, but uh, that's we we'll leave that alone. But just if people are saying, about, Oh, well, you know, in, infrastructure and ability and blah blah blah, Italy. Is doing six times better than we are. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, that did that did throw me quite a lot actually. On the on the private hospitals, did you see Leo coming out and uh, talking about the private hospitals? Because it was magical, Michael. So Paul Reed, the H- head of the HSE, comes out and says that you know it's time for the private hospitals to pull on the green jersey, which is never a good sign because it sort of says, "Please God help us." And Leo came out and he was asked about the private hospitals and whether or not we'd need their ICUs. And it looks like we are definitely going to need their ICUs. And um, it says, um, you need, here's, here's a quote from him. You need to make them available. Your staff, your doctors, your nurses. They understand medical ethics and they're going to want you to make your ICU capacity available to us. I don't doubt that many of the people involved in private medicine in Ireland have a very good grasp of medical ethics. You and I have uh, had some dealings with uh, some individuals involved who have a very keen sense both of ethics and of public duty. In some cases, that's why they broke away from public health. In order to provide a service to people that they weren't getting. And I don't doubt that push comes to shove, these people will do uh, do the right thing. And maybe I'm being very naive on that, but considering the personalities and the... M- the morals, shall we say, and the, the moral worldview that these individuals have, I, I think that's reasonable. I just wonder what is going on behind the scenes in the negotiations. Because he said, you know, he was asked, was this going to be an issue? Because some of the private hospitals are rumoured to not be keen to sign on again, given all of the problems they ran into last time. And Leo said, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be necessary. Every single private hospital came on board back in the first wave. And in those hospitals are doctors, nurses, therapists, people who dedicated their lives to saving lives. And on the board of those hospitals, there are people who dedicated their lives to healthcare and saving lives. I'm absolutely confident that they will make all their facilities available. Interesting thing about political communication. If you need a paragraph long explanation for why someone will assuredly do something, basically runs down to by God, I hope they'll do it. You're not in a strong position, generally. I assume there is stuff going on that we are not privy to, that there's a reason why they've decided to move the locus of this particular negotiation to the public square, exert some kind of moral pressure on the people involved in order to encourage them to go to where the government wants them to be. I wonder whether that's... The best strategy? I mean, the ministers have also said, have been told to name the private hospitals that refuse to sign on. Uh Uh-huh. So Leo, Leo himself said, if they don't sign on, they'll be publicly named for not playing their part in the fight against the coronavirus. Which again, 
indicates negotiations are not going terribly well. I'm sure lots of people out there would say, you know what? We're in uh, effectively a wartime scenario and at war when you... It's not like the normal normal situation. It's not like the normal marketplace where you have a variety of different targets and aims which you want to achieve and that's why you need to uh, have a freely operating market in order to make those choices. There's only a single aim here. We know what the aim is, so you can do that. The, the problem is... I. You'd be far more convinced of this if the government was behaving as if there were, in fact, a wartime situation going on and they were absolutely running at 100% in their attempt to resolve the situation in the best and quickest, quickest way possible. But that is a discussion we've already had and one which we will have again. Have you, um, have you seen the deal the HSE wants the private hospitals to sign? No, this one, no, I haven't. So the HSE wants hospi- these private hospitals to sign on to provide what uh, they call an all-inclusive package. So that includes the services of all the doctors in it. But what the HSE wants is 40% of all beds in private hospitals for two years. For two years? Yeah, we'll, we'll help with the COVID and you want what now? So you can kind of see what the issue you know, private hospitals might have. HSE comes to you, says, we need your help with uh, COVID capacity because it could be surge, public health could be overwhelmed. Private hospitals go, yeah, absolutely. Um, we can work on that. And the HSE goes, and due to that, you need to give us 40% of your beds for two years, which we will control and determine what they are used for. And private hospitals sort of go, sorry, what now? How does how how does how does A relate to B there? I don't know. As I said, I was saying earlier, I think that it's, it's it almost sounds as if there's a whole other plan going on there, where somebody says, you know what? If we got a hold of the private hospitals, and maybe we got a year and a half out of them after COVID, you know, that we could do stuff with. with we could we could do all sorts of fun stuff, and it would definitely make our figures look better. Oh yeah. That would probably be why we are now seeing incredibly high-level politicians going, we may need to publicly shame these people, but we won't need to because they're so, so supportive of the national interest uh, and not being so would kill people. I would be curious to know why they put into it. I mean, there may be a very sensible reason why they said for two years. Well, I would imagine they said, you know, we can't be sure when COVID will go and, you know, we want to be absolutely sure and... Incidentally, this would give us control of 40% of your hospitals for a period of time. That's totally beside the point. That's necessary, Michael. Decent. We'll bring them down from within. (laughs) We'll make them so inept that people just won't see the point. I actually saw a, um, a thread on Twitter there during the week, and it was a young woman saying that she had found a lump in her breast and had gone to her GP, and her GP had um, put her in touch with the relevant services that she'd been told she'd be seen within six weeks, and that that was in September or possibly uh, November, and had heard nothing since then. And it was all about how this was a, you know, how much stress this had put her under, because you're just waiting. And I was kind of thinking, I wonder how much that costs in the private sector, and how quickly you would be seen. And there are a couple of other people popping up under the tread on Twitter saying that it had happened to them and they had gone to the private sector. And the cost, the highest cost I saw was 800 euro. And everyone had been seen in, I think, four weeks at the most. Okay. And it just reminded me of every time we see someone saying there should be no private healthcare because it's unfair to have it. And I just sort of go, yes, it would be terribly, it would be much more fair if we didn't have private healthcare in that everyone would die equally. And that's the important thing. 
it's important that we all die. It's important that we, we hold the abstract ideal of fairness over the lives of people. Because that's mm. what medicine is about, Michael. Yeah. It has been since the beginning. Yeah. It's, it's about the ideal, not the actual end point. In some of the uh, in the original version of the Hippocratic Oath, I think the the first Hippocratic Oath said uh, that you we swear to do no harm and to make sure that everybody has to wait at least six months to get anything, even people who could otherwise afford to go to a private physician or sorceress uh, to get access to herbs and incantations. That's that's the original. I can't remember the Greek. It's right up there with the part that says human lives are meaningless next to your philosophical attachments. Yeah, that, well, we'll see, <laughs> we will see how that, how that develops. But they're obviously, they're getting out the big moral guns there. We'll see how the likes of, uh, well, we won't name them hospitals, but the individuals involved will respond. Yes, uh, it'll be very fun to see because it, I'm looking forward to, like, how high a level of desperation can you put into your discussion on this? Because you're starting at people will die. Where do you go from there? Like children will die, and then you're like, then you're basically you know the Mad Magazine cover where it's a dog with a gun to its head, and saying vote for me or we'll kill this dog. That's like your next logical step. Well, we saw a version of that already today, but that's that's a different story. So you the schools, the schools closed. Then they were kind of open. Then the unions pointed out that there was no way they were doing that, and now the schools are closed again. In something that was incredibly obvious and didn't need to be some sort of political failure, and yet managed to become one. Well, what's what's very good about this story is that there's enough there's enough uh, political aptitude to go around for everybody. First, the first one is <laughs> Fianna Fáil, and I don't want to blame Norma Foley because Norma's probably doing her best. But they took something which was, let's face it, on the face of it, most people thought bleeding bleeding obvious. They said, okay, we're not going back, uh, we're postponing. And the moment they said that they were postponing until a certain date, everybody said, well, that's it. Because right now, when they made the announcement, the numbers of the infections, the case numbers were still increasing. And there was no way that the numbers were going to go down by the time we hit the 11th. The number, the case numbers were, were almost certainly going to be higher than the case numbers had been when the, the announcement to postpone reopening was going to take place. So everybody said, well, that's it. That means, well, we'll look at the 31st. Then they said the 31st. And everybody looked and said, okay, 31st. They also put out that they were going to review the decision to reopen on the 31st. On, I think that the date was the 30th, which everybody looked and said, okay, that means that they're not going back then because you can't decide on the 30th to go back. You can't review it and with the honest intention of making a, a review that could go either way and say, okay, we've decided to go back, you know, less than 24 hours notice, not going to work. So everybody had resigned themselves. The reality was it was going to happen that hopefully they would reopen uh, for the January midterm. Then somebody had the idea, do you know what we'll do? Because there was chatter on the on, on Twitter and things. Which politicians and journalists seem to mistake constantly for the real world? And they said, well, what about the leave inserts? What about leave inserts? We'll do leave inserts. We can do that. How, that sounds like a really good idea. Nobody had actually sat down and worked out, well, how does that work? Can that work? Will it work in all schools? Now, then you have the unions. I have long been of the opinion that the single biggest enemy of teachers in Ireland are the teachers' unions. Certainly, one union in particular, we won't name them, but there you go. They know who they are, Gary. 
and they got it and there was no need there was absolutely no need to get involved in this all they had to do was make noises about the safety of children about the safety of schools about safety of teachers left it blah 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 because you know what actually happened now everybody's saying it's the unions the unions the unions did it the unions did it i've been just noodling around with uh talking to a few people in a few different schools and one thing i've been hearing is and this does not surprise me i don't know gary if it surprises you large numbers of parents were contacting the schools and contacting teachers saying i'm not happy with the numbers the case numbers where they are particularly in areas where you had large number where you had bad cases i am not happy sending my child into school and you had very large numbers of parents in different places just Apart that this was not, and nobody had ever thought that that could, everybody assumed everybody would be delighted for all the kids to go back to school. For, ironically, if it was a different class, if it was primary or if it was the young, it may be first years or something, you have the childcare issue, but you're talking about live inserts. So you're talking about 17 and 18 year olds. These, these children, these young adults are not a childcare issue. They can stay at home. They don't need minding. So for their parents, it's not a question of whether they're going to have to stay at home because the kids are at home. It's whether or not they think their, their child is going to be safe. And a lot of parents right now, rightly or wrongly, are no longer of the opinion that it's safe for them to go into school. A teacher, a different teachers will have different numbers, different schools, obviously different sizes. But a teacher will in a day often go sit in, a, sit in that room with 130 different people coming from a very wide area. Now, we're hearing at the same time this message, do not go to work unless you absolutely have to. Limit your movements. Don't go into, don't go into closed spaces with a large number of people. Say, However, if you're a teacher, and if you're, or if you're, if you're just a school child, you can go, you can travel anywhere where you can get a groups, of, groups of people from anywhere in a 15 or 20 mile radius. We'll put you into a room, we'll leave you there. Uh, we'll leave you in the same room, okay, with the windows open. And by the way, that's not a small factor right now. If you if imagine this, Gary, right what the last few days, in most schools, the doors and windows are open all the time. And I don't know how comfortable a learning experience that would be for these children when the temperature is hovering around one, when you're sitting in the same room and the windows and, and, the, and the windows and doors are open all the time. Some schools could have done it. Some schools would have found it very difficult to do. Some schools would be able to do it, but maybe it would take them time to, I don't know. This is the kind of thing that if a well-run school would have looked at, got the spreadsheets out, looked at them. I think there are other things they could have done, but just this blanket thing with the leaving cert was never going to work. And it really was a question of, it seems at this stage, anyway, Fianna Fáil or Norma or whoever, taking their shoe off, off, taking their shoes off and looking at their feet, just deciding, should I shoot the left or the right? And I don't doubt that whatever, whichever foot is left will be shot soon. They have a capacity for foot shooting, which is fantastic. But the important question, Michael, will there be summer holidays or will there be school? Well, you see, there's another issue there. I mean, it's this. Uh, I hate to be always going to be tedious about the. Well, what does that actually mean? Seriously, well, okay, let's let's count these as all of these as snow days. Let's just keep teaching, and then we'll just keep teaching through. Well, I you could say well. Teachers can take these as their holidays. Well, fine. They won't actually have their holidays because anybody who thinks, particularly if you're teaching a fifth or sixth year class, that you're not going to be in fairly constant contact with uh, their student, with your students who are going to be ringing you or emailing you or 
looking for work and getting work back and doing essays and doing projects and whatever and RSRs and things, then you're living in cloud cuckoo land. There are a large number of teachers, Gary, who are also involved in the, in the Leaving Cert. Now, if we have a Leaving Cert, right? Now, who are going to be involved in the exams? Who are going to be uh, correctors, supervised, examiners, supervising examiners, and so on? Now, if we don't have a holiday, none of those teachers will have a holiday because the moment school stops, Leaving Cert will start, and they will go back and they will be finished. They will actually finish doing their work on the exams when school follows the next starts the next year so i think that would be a problematic at least for a certain portion of teachers because uh, i know people don't believe this and i can see why you wouldn't believe it unless you actually saw it in front of you but if you're a teacher and you're particularly in secondary school and you're actually you've been doing distance teaching the amount of work and i would say most teachers would say work for less outcome less product less productive for in, that's involved in, te- in in doing distance teaching is massive you've got you're doing much longer days and you're doing seven days a week and even teachers gary much as many people like to uh, like to not like them even the teachers god love them are 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 can get a are due a break at the end of the year and this has been a very tough year for everybody in certain and teachers not the least amongst them but we are now looking at the whole issue of the leaving sort again i don't know if you noticed uh, the North, I think, has announced that GCSEs and A-levels are cancelled. Yeah, and I've seen quite a lot of people kind of pop out of the woodwork in Ireland who didn't like the Leaving Cert to begin with, who are now saying the Leaving Cert should be gotten rid of and replaced with something else. And I suppose we will we will see how that goes. We will see what happens to the um, to the summer months. Uh, j- just quickly on the, the subject of Leaving Cert, one of the reasons they, they give is because of the terrible anxiety that the Leaving Cert engenders in young people. Well, I can tell you on the basis that there might not be a Leaving Cert, the levels of anxiety that they are, that students are now experiencing every week has massively increased. Because every week they're now thinking, is it going to be, are my, the essays I'm doing now, is that going to be part of my result? And my Christmas results, is that part of my results? My Easter exams, the mocks, uh, my classroom participation, my attendance is this going to be part the notion that changing the the result from a single exam to all year round will actually lower the anxiety level of students may actually be misguided speaking of lowering anxiety levels michael i know what will do it successfully what's that a good joke and i've got one good for you. joke have you now in order to to fully get this joke if you're not keeping up with current affairs you need to know about the issues in China's Xinjiang region. Not in detail, but you need to know that they've engaged in a, a policy of mass forcible sterilization and forced abortions of women in the Uyghur ethnic population. And that'll allow you to, to get the joke here. So this is from the Chinese embassy in America. It's a statement from them. Our study shows that in the process of eradicating extremism, the minds of Uyghur women in Xinjiang were emancipated, and gender equality and reproductive health were promoted, making them no longer baby-making machines. They are more <laughs> confident and independent. Yes, yeah, yeah. You have to admire the sheer ballsiness of, yeah, technically we forcibly sterilized most of them, and yes, that might constitute genocide, but we have emancipated them from traditional <laughs> repressive gender roles. 
they are so much more conscious raised now that it's just fantastic. They are no longer baby making machines and they couldn't be if they wanted to. Now that they've had their consciousness raised, Gary, they don't want to. So it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Been anyway, that's not a story. I just thought we needed a fun little joke to, to move on to the uh, to the next thing. Yeah, well, it's just worth uh, pointing out that we saw some fairly heavy interventions for Parliament Irish politicians about the political situation in the United States. I particularly liked Simon uh, Harris's one, which consisted of an American flag emoji and a broken heart emoji. I mean, before this point, Michael, people thought of political statements and laws and constitutions as requiring text. <laughs> but I think he's, he's, he is dead. Like, we need this man making some sort of amendment to the Constitution. Because with the right combination of smiley faces, thumbs up, and Irish flags, we have got a golden future ahead of us. I mean, have you never read the proclamation and just been like, I mean, this would be better if there was like less words and more mimicry. Yeah. Like English flag down, gunshot. Irish flag, two thumbs up, smiling face, pool of blood. I think that gets all of it. So yeah, yeah, I think that that gets it keeps the spirit of it. I mean, in thousands of years' time, people might dig it up and say, Do you know, oh, obviously, these people were they were a, a late Egyptian culture that practiced hieroglyphics rather than an alphabet an alphabet based language. Or they would be very proud that we at least got to the stage of painting images on the side of caves. Mm. Mm. But yes, lots of heavy interventions in Washington. For something which was also quite humorous in parts, but also a sort of, hmm, this isn't going to go down well. No. Now, it was also the opportunity, not of all of which were taken, I was a bit disappointed, but the golden opportunity for some high-class trolling on the Turkey, Turkey stood up to the, and took, and, and did it in a way which I thought was very good. The Erdogan government <laughs> expressed its concern about the situation in uh, in Washington and said that it hoped that all of the groups would come together, moderate their positions, recognize the central values that were involved. And I think, I don't know, but I think somebody may have even offered their services, you know, to mediate if they wanted to. <laughs> I thought Iran might do it, but God, it looks like Iran is. I mean, my personal favorite was some of what we saw from Africa, a couple of some African politicians. I don't think any country went this far, but a couple of African politicians just responded. You know, the, the Facebook coloured square kind of thing? And then white text that just said, pray for America. <laughs> and I thought, you've been waiting years for your chance to turn that one around. The whole thing is a bit bizarre. It is weird. And I can see that if you're American, it could be deeply upsetting. So what we have is we have a large crowd gathers in Washington. Mostly peacefully, in the same way that there were mostly peaceful riots. A number of them break into the Capitol building in what was being described rather breathlessly as a coup. Now, I have a bit of an interest in coups, and coups generally require, like, leadership, or the military, or knowledge of what you're doing, or shirts. Well, now, hold on, hold on. There is, it is believed that there is actually... A video of a policeman taking a selfie with one of the with the protesters. Oh, well, that just proves it. I suppose it was a coup after all. So you know, it's, they they were not without support. 
in the in the industrial complex, military industrial complex. Now, I did, I did, I did quite enjoy all of the people like Joe Biden and Michelle Obama coming out and saying that. I mean, if these had been uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, this would have ended very differently. To which there are two points: one, BLM destroyed several American cities over the course of the year, and very few people got shot. And two, there is that video of that protester climbing over uh, a window and getting shot in the neck. And she was white, so... Yes, shot dead. If you were to actually compile all the various moments of outrage and riot across the United States this year, you'd add up to several hundred days because it was happening in many different locations. The number of times that the police actually opened fire was very, very small. And most of the time, I mean, infamously, say, in Chicago, different uh, for long periods of time in Portland, but in, in other places, the police were under instructions and possibly under their own volition in other places, t- took a very, very passive stance. They did not resist. Very often they retreated or they were simply absent. So first of all, the second thing is one of the lines that's been used is, well, of course, of course they didn't attack these people because they look like them. It's much easier shoot people who don't look like you. Well, Gary, whatever it, a lot of the protests started in the United States in different cities, as we commented on the time, when you, by the, by the end of it, uh, if you're talking about looking like being the same skin complexion, mostly those protests, they were white. And in fact, I mean, at the time we talked, I think it was either Seattle or it was in Seattle or, or, or possibly Portland where the lo- a local leader of the and any the NAACP commented whatever this was at the beginning. Now this is just white folk acting out. This are this is this has become a white a, a white event. So uh, I'm not exactly sure that there was a massive difference in the skin color between a lot of the protesters. I mean, I will say this: putting aside the comments about BLM and and how the police should have reacted, and putting aside the fact that it was kind of slightly ridiculous, and putting aside the fact that we saw. During the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, people in the Capitol building losing the run of themselves and basically threatening American politicians, and they didn't get shot either. Putting all that aside, you shouldn't, you absolutely shouldn't, use violence or force to gain entry any political building in a country. And if you do, and you get shot, I think that's pretty fair. I'm baffled that in the United States, they were able to get that close to the Capitol at all let alone get inside it. These places are built architecturally to reference Greek and Roman temples because they are, that's what they represent. They are the temples of the people. They are temples of democracy. And there is some, I think, an important symbolic meaning which that these people, these are sacred spaces. And it's, you sh- these people should not have been allowed in. It's crazy that you have half a dozen cops at a barrier stopping them, which then... And, oh, by the way, I mean, it was all over the, the gaff at the beginning. Oh, that they had, that they just opened up the barriers and let them in. Because, and, and this is one of those stories, which again is very often about the story rather than the thing itself. There are dozens, you can, as you can imagine, dozens and dozens of bits of video of different angles and different places and different incidents around Washington, D.C. today. And everybody's going to pick and choose whichever bit of the video that they think speaks to their, their narrative. I mean, we all are very, very good at finding evidence that supports our point of view. Dis- anything which is dis- was it disconfirmation 
is uh, something we're not good at. But everybody sees six in, everybody goes on, find six seconds of video, and that's it. They know what happened. Really, yet again, we should to say, lads, hold on. I mean, I, I did have roughly the same reaction of you of whatever about outside. The fact they were able to so easily gain access to the building, and I don't think this was because they were white, or I don't think it was because of the type of protest, is kind of bizarre. Like, you should have stronger security, but as we saw with the Brett Kavanaugh thing, it is apparently very easy to get into the Capitol building in numbers and just disrupt. And then people were showing images of like a single black preacher being arrested and pointing out that this is, you know, how different they were. And the point I would make there is, if there's one person, it's very easy to arrest them. Yeah. At the point there are potentially hundreds of people, and there's a crowd of God knows what size outside, you have to be a little bit more careful with how you handle it, because you probably don't want to die. An angry mob that has you in its target is not where you want to be, regardless of who you are. No, and even if you're there and you're willing to make that heroic sacrifice, you have to be aware that engaging them directly may actually lead not just to you losing your life, but other people. There, so we have video footage, at least, or at least photos of uh, an individual who has a Confederate flag inside in the Capitol building, and someone pointed out that in the period 1860, 1865, this never happened. And I can understand that there is something deeply nasty uh, about the idea that you have this flag, and uh, which ca would carry whatever con the connotations that it historically does inside the Capitol building of the United uh, of the United States uh, House of Representatives. So that is bad, and you know, frankly, the little bits and pieces we've seen and heard from these people, I think that. It would not be necessarily inaccurate or unkind to say that this was a group of people that was, shall we say, under-medicated. Uh, they... And Donald... God. Donald's legacy. In many ways, it was sort of the perfect end to the Trump presidency. But uh, the video he just put out in which he says that there is a new administration coming and he's, his primary duty now is to ensure a safe and orderly transition. When you watch the video, you can... You can nearly see the gun to the back of his head of just, like, no more fucking around. You read this now. Another, I mean, in the same way, it was interesting that when they decided to call in the National Guard, they didn't go to Trump. They went to Pence. Yeah, and that happened a number of times. Apparently, today, this is reported anyway, on a number of important critical occasions, they talked to Pence rather than to Trump. And that is an important thing here, because at the point you're doing that, the, the presidency is somewhat imperial, but it's also kind of a bully pulpit. And at this point, he's a lame duck. McConnell has clearly had enough with him. And even his own people are going to Pence. Which indicates he's going to spend a little bit of time pottering around the White House. But is done. Yeah, I mean, if you people are talking about a coup. If you wanted to be anally precise about it, there was a, a little coup today. But the coup was when Trump was effectively excluded from the chain. And Pence was the man that they went to. That, in a, that was the coup. Trump was uh, effectively sidelined as president on a, number of, on a number of key occasions. Now, yeah, you could say this is the perfect end. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a, a low-key, keystone cops version of a Gotterdammerung, a Twilight of the Gods. 
it's a, it, it could have been so much better. He could have actually had a legacy, you know, if he'd managed to be okay. The next, the first few days after the election, he goes through his thing. But if he'd managed to just say, okay, we lost, let's go and play golf. People could have been in the position eventually to look back at his presidency and said, you know what? He didn't go to war. He had an economy which was growing strongly. He particularly had done well for people in blue collar jobs where wages, I mean, you've looked at the figures, Gary, I know I, the, I, we talked before, I think about this, that wage inflation amongst blue collar workers, factory workers was really strong. I mean, there was real significant in, increase in the, uh, the take home pay of people in blue collar jobs rather than, which had been, which was going against the trend going back for decades now. He had seen unemployment uh, and uh, unemployment fall and employment rise to actual in, in, with with the African Americans and minorities. They were doing much better than they had been for a long time. He had brokered uh, a very significant peace deal with a number of Arab countries in Israel. There was the basis of a decent legacy there. Well, the problem with legacies, when you talk about legacy, is it's always difficult to tell what people in the future will always care about. So something like this, or something like the uh, the behaviour since the election, that may not even be a blip, but something like the accords with Israel may be seen as immensely impactful, or they may be seen as meaningless. But trying to crystal ball as to what someone will be seen like, what their leg, I think is it's not really useful because you can't tell. Yeah, I, I, sure, that's fine, Gary. But I mean, this has been this has been horrific. No. We have had a narrative for months now of people, prominent, respectable people on what is called the moderate left of the Democratic Party, talk about things where saying that violence against property is not violence. Speech is violence, but protest is, but, but writing is, is a form of free speech. Um, the anger that people, we've had a revolution in the streets. The only thing, and Nancy Pelosi basically, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but as one stage was saying, so to the effect that she, she was amazed there weren't more uprisings, and maybe there should be more uprisings. My point is that there's something has happened at the level of polarization in American politics where you, this kind of thing is no longer a surprise. It's part of a broader continuum on the left and on the right. And what's and I thought the most, to me, the most disturbing thing was not what was happening. There. The number of people on in the in the in the GOP who persisted with the myth of the stolen election, because Gary, it is nobody has produced an iota of solid evidence that I have seen published anyway that there was anything like enough shenanigans going on that could have changed the results of the elections in any of the states. We, we discussed this earlier. Uh, at the time of the election. And I think the line, or at least my line was, there may have been irregularities, there may have been voter fraud, but to overturn the election, you don't need to show individual instances of those things, because in any election of any size, you'll have them. You need to show systemic voter fraud or vote tampering. Widespread and systemic. And the Trump campaign put forward many legal challenges, and in none of those challenges were they able to show that that had happened? So either it didn't happen, or the Trump campaign, and by extension Trump, because he appointed those people, are incompetent to such a point that it will never be proven anyway. 
at which point, why are you bothering? But when you figures like Ted Cruz going along with this, you think that this is this is poisonous politics. No, this is not in to do with anything in particular. But somebody, a number of voices have been saying, you know what, we need we need a new party. We need a, a party which is conservatives and libertarians and people in the centre right to occupy that space in the centre right and create a new politics and a new party and people will flow to it and lots of people say oh absolutely that's a great idea it's a great idea and then i saw somebody uh, uh, uh publish you know one of those uh, axis north south east west axis of uh political opinion where you've got left right, left authoritarian right authoritarian left libertarian right libertarian and it basically tracked uh, a political opinion in the united states and his comment was yeah let's set up a new political party for which there is nobody the willing to vote. Oh, yeah, that was uh, that was Pascal uh, Gobri. He's um, he's at the public uh, policy center. Yeah, yeah, no, that's it's it's the same thing you run into in Ireland. People are fairly concentrated in their areas, but Washington, regardless of what you think about Washington and whether or not it was harmless or not, or whether or not it was a good thing or whatever, wherever you stand on on the issues, it was strategically moronic. If Someone spends years saying that, you know, these people are lawless, they want to tear down democracy, they want to do these things, and you know they will take anything you do and present it in that light. You don't fucking riot in the Capitol building. No, you don't. But And, and, and even before that, we, the listeners may be aware of a, conversa- a tape conversation which was leaked between... Uh, the between Donald Trump and a prominent Republican official in, in Secretary of State of Georgia, yeah, in State of Georgia, look where Trump says, All I'm listen, dude, all I'm looking for is 11,900 votes, and he's basically subor- he's suborning, suborning election fraud, if you like. But he's basically, Come on, give me 11,900 votes, that's all I need. The result of that in practical politics was that in the that Georgia now has two Democratic senators. After One thing that everybody was saying was, well, you know, nothing really is going to happen much because the Democrats did badly in the House and the Republicans had held the Senate because while there were going to be two, two runoff seats in Georgia, all they needed to do was hold one of the Georgia seats and they would hold the Senate. And it was widely believed that the, the Republicans were in a position possibly to take two. But on all the polling, the, the possibility, people discounted the possibility. Not the not the possibility, the probabilities that the, the Democrats could take both seats, but they, lo and behold, the interventions and the behaviour had ma- depressed. I would say that the initial exit polling shows depressed the Republican vote and and energised the Democrats, and has produced a practical outcome that now the Democrats uh, have, with the uh, VP sitting as chairman of the Senate to, for tied votes. They have control of the Senate. Now, what in practice a 50-50 Senate means will be that you'll have four or five moderate senators in the middle that will control it. It's unlikely that Biden will be able to get through any really controversial stuff through the Senate, like, say, a court packing move. But we'll see. But basic fact is that it shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't be a question. Republicans should hold the Senate, and they don't. And that is a practical political... That's a, that's a lesson in practical politics. Anyway. So, on to uh, something in Irish news. This is something Leo said. With the new round of lockdowns, and on one hand, 
I can kind of see where he would come out early to say this. On the other hand, it's not a great option. Leo came out and said to businesses that um, they should expect to remain closed for the first quarter of this year. So until the end of March. Probably gives you an idea of how long the public lockdowns are going to go on. Uh, Although, considering they're there in order to support the vaccination plans, uh, you should probably expect the lockdowns to last until about 2025. Yep. So, basically, it comes out on uh, News at One, comes out, says they should expect to be closed for three months. Now, a three-month closure is um, bad, I would say. I would say quite bad, I think would be fair even, Michael. Well, I think you might say somewhere between quite bad and cataclysmic for a lot of small businesses. There's two things that either happen here. Either the state implements some new, very wide-ranging support for uh, businesses, particularly SMEs, that is easy to access and can fill in pretty much everything that they would have had to spend over the next three months and possibly deals with some legacy costs, or we'll start seeing businesses go to the wall at a rate you wouldn't believe. Uh, We already expected, I think Ismi said that they were hoping that less than 5,000 businesses fall, which is bad. 5,000 businesses failing is really bad. But another three months, particularly now, Gonna be hard to see how a lot of places are going to get through that. I mean, pubs are the ones that immediately come to mind because we're gotten rid of takeaway pubs. We've also got rid of click and collect. So a lot of businesses that could do that but couldn't really do uh, the click and deliver stuff are also going to suffer. And particularly with the way we went in um, December, where we lo- they would have lost a lot of that trading season as well. It's like, if you're in business now, in certain sectors are going to be doing fine, but in others, I mean, like, would you not hear that and just be like, what is the point? I think for the pubs, a lot of, the, this, a lot of pubs, this is it. They're just, many pubs, particularly in rural areas or areas of small population, have just been ticking over anyway. There's been a fundamental change in the way that people drink in the last 20 years. The pub has been struggling. And for many, many places many pubs this will be the end and i think that that's that's going to have long-term social consequences i don't i, I don't want to romanticize the role of the country pub where the old the old fellas come in to have the socialization and smoke a pipe where they which they can't of course and talk to their neighbors but that is that is true it is for a lot of communities a lot of small places the death of the pub is is going to be a very negative the very negative thing is going to remove an opportunity for socialization. It's going to remove a locus of activity and that I think will impact the viability of small, a lot of those small, small communities long term. Then other small business, yeah, I mean, we're, you're, you're faced with it. How long is this going? There's no certainty. And I suppose if one of the reasons why we're so pissed off and so not carrying on about the vaccine situation here, number one, it's because there's been an outrageous failure here, both by the EU and by the national gov- our national government and others in Europe, to do this in a halfway competent or reasonable way. And because of that, people will die who otherwise would not have died. And that is a very bad thing. But also, this is going to extend this period of lockdown. It's going to extend the period of restrictions. And all th- I wonder, Gary, how much these people understand how much harder it is to start a business than to keep a business going. And how small the pool of people who are willing to start a business is. Yeah. 
and Ireland does not have a particularly kind bankruptcy law. So, and we are very, we are not entrepreneurially good. When you look at the figures for the numbers of people engaged in entrepreneurial activity in Ireland, the native native entrepreneurs, we don't score well. And the bankruptcy may be part of that, as well, and cultural issues are part of that. But yeah, the, as you say, the numbers of people who are willing to take that risk and go into business is not high. So now what we'll see is we will see a number of people who stuck with the business when if this was a normal trading scenario and they had hit the place they now are in their accounts, would have shuttered the business. No question about it. But because of the situation we find ourselves in, assumed, you know, we can get through this and we'll keep operational. Yeah. And I wonder how many of those businesses will now have to go through bankruptcy. And that then leads to further issues because if you're going through bankruptcy, that limits what you can do and how likely you are to start a new business because we're not like America where you can declare bankruptcy and then just start all over again. In Ireland, bankruptcies stick around. I mean, yeah. for years we saw people going over to England to declare bankruptcy if they could because the regime yes. there was just so much better. Now, we are not as bad as we were years ago where if you declared bankruptcy, there was ridiculous consequences to it even if you had done nothing wrong. But yeah, if we have a lot of the people who created these uh, these jobs and these businesses are going through bankruptcy or they've lost their business, this assumption that, well, a business will just open again, as if by magic, you need people to do that. And you can create all of the finance side and regulatory side kind of things to increase the likelihood of that. But if you don't have the people to do it, or if the people who would normally do it have just gone through a grievously scarring experience, well, that's going to be bad for a lot of rural communities up and down the country, a lot of whom are basically kept alive by, like, a post office, a pub, and a corner shop. Also, remember that we are only 10 years off a massive financial uh, and economic crisis in this country, where which saw many, many small entrepreneurs end up in bankrupt so we were, we were we hadn't fully recovered from that event because I, there are people we know in common we talked about this before ourselves who were, who were only just managing to get through the bankruptcy procedure in the last couple of years and people who had because of bankruptcy because of bankruptcy laws and because of how long these things took to to get done and because of the attitude of the banks to them and their capacity to let, to, to to arrange credit lines get capital had basically been excluded from the pool of people that might get into business again we, we, we're already at a pool shall we say which is a which has been restricted by the a, a recent traumatic experience and this on top of that the the number the the pool available of people is not going to be huge and the assumption that we can just well we'll just take off again it's just asinine yeah, this sort of v-shaped recovery and the more scaring this becomes and the, also the more people who get used to the level of the pandemic unemployment payment for no work, harder this becomes to take off again, particularly in sectors that don't have terribly high wages, uh, which is already a problem. So I think the, the thing with this is, okay, he said they're going to close till March, but now my question is, okay, but what happens now? What are the supports that will be put in place? What are the things that will be there? Because again, I know we mentioned this this on the last episode, you might expect coming from a more sort of conservative or free market position it doesn't matter if businesses go to the wall because that's creative destruction that's how new things come about this is not a normal circumstance and if we want to minimize the burden on the state and the state's ability to bounce back from that we need a situation where businesses that are viable 
but would be closed because of these issues are viable at the end of it, as many of them as possible. And if we don't have that, God knows what happens. It's not just an economic, there's also a point of justice here, that these businesses are being closed at the diktat of the state. They're not being closed as a result of the market telling them there isn't a market for what they're selling. The market is saying, you know, you're fine, but because of the circumstances, the state has taken a position where you're not allowed to trade. So it's perfectly reasonable to then to say to the state, well, okay, you're not letting me trade. So I, I need, in the same way as if you're not the analogy, the analogy is not perfect, but if the state decides to take a compulsory purchase order on some of your property, you get compensated. In this the same way, the state is telling you you're not allowed to do business and your business is legal. Then the state has some some kind of duty of care towards you. On top of that, then there's the economics of it. If we want businesses, we desperately want these businesses to survive so that when recovery happens, they're in a position to take part in that recovery. So the economics and the morality of it, I think, dictate that. And I think the ISME have been talking about the fact that the government has taken a rather narrow understanding of what it is that these that small businesses actually need to keep going. Small businesses, and this is slightly beside the point, but it's, it's just something I, I did want to mention. Small businesses, in some ways, remind me of post offices. Not the grossly inefficient part and the fact there's arguments that they should be totally changed by, but that in many cases a post office brings together a community, it gives people a reason to go somewhere, and then you create other things around that. And so they don't seem important, but if you get rid of them, you can find that there are actually fairly devastating consequences for areas, just because there's no focal point for people to gather around. And that can have a massive... that can, The kind of change in behaviour you can see by removing something like that can be devastating on its impact to other businesses that you wouldn't think would be in any way related and then that kind of widens and you just end up with areas that are basically parking lots for people to drive to major cities to work in and then drive back there at night and we've seen this happen in other countries and we know that the social consequences of this are, are not good they're not this is not this is not a positive so on a, a more of a security theater note than anything else the government has announced it's examining reducing times for alcohol sales, so <sighs> that you'll only be able to buy alcohol before a certain time. Now, I had heard that they were considering a nationwide curfew at some point, so this is, in fact, better. But it does. So we have, we have rapid testing, which is being used in other countries to enable people to go back to some sort of normality during the kind of summer, particularly. Now it's kind of less of an issue. We decided we weren't going to use that. Neffet said they didn't want to use that. So we didn't. So we let that opportunity go by. Then we go to the vaccine issue. That's a shambles. That's just a fucking shambles. And people don't seem to care yet. But I'd be interested to see if there is a point where people start to care. Because if people start to care about how badly it's going and they start looking into it, people will start to really care about how badly it's going. Mostly because, as you said, Michael, it's going to lead to people dying who don't need to die. And people frown on that particularly when it's someone they know i think did we see today not again i was israel has now completed vaccinating all of its most vulnerable most vulnerable populations is it all the all the over 80s are done or all the 75s are done one of their first targets is finished anyway i don't know i i think they've the last i'd seen they had vaccinated something like 40 or 50 percent of the over 65s 
So it may be that they've done all the, the overages. The problem with Israel, Michael, and this is something they didn't take into consideration at all, is they're moving so quickly that you, you don't look at them for like 12 hours. And then someone goes, oh, did you hear about this milestone? Did that happen? And you go, yeah. maybe. Maybe it did. I don't know. And somebody said to me in this, the voice of a man who felt was obviously set, communicating something which he regarded as a crushing response. Yeah, yeah, it's all very well for the Israelis. But there's a real danger that they may start running out of vaccines sometime soon. Oh. Yeah, I thought, wow, oh, oh my God, can you imagine the shame of it? It's, uh, it's not the life of Brian. It's Actually, it is the life of Brian, where Brian gets thrown into the torture chamber, and there's the other guy who's being tortured, and he's just like, oh, to be spit on. I dream of it. Oh, yeah, the, the way he's the pet. Oh, pilots. And there is this little bit of, oh, they might run out of vaccine. I dream of the day when we do so well that we've run out of vaccine. Because let me tell you, that day is not happening at current projections. That day will not happen. There are vaccines today being trialled in Mongolia for the first time that will be in production and approved when we are still vaccinating people. However, we're talking about the fact that the demon drink it's all the drink's fault, Gary, so let's stop the people drinking. And um, they say they're also working on new public health regulations to strengthen the law around drinking alcohol in public streets. Now, oh, God. considering we are in a full lockdown, and if you're just loitering on the streets, I assume the guards can move you on anyway. I would question exactly what this does. Like, if you're getting hammered in your own house, and it's not a party... Why does the government care? Because frankly, like, what else is there to do? It's a crime to be intoxicated in public in Ireland anyway. I mean, technically, yes. Yes, but Gary, as I like to point out, the law is technical. There's no such thing as as something which is legally, well, technically no, but legal. It's it's illegal. It's illegal. uh, It's illegal. I think it's still illegal to uh, carry a, a bottle of liquor uncovered on the street so what they've said is what they actually want to ban is takeaway pints where you just go to a bar and they you, know, you can't go in but they'll just sell you your pint with a lid in it is what leo said they'll just put a lid in it and uh he's saying you can't just ban takeaway pints because that'd be a problem uh so you have to you have to ban all you have to ban after a certain time because otherwise you could create a problem for restaurants and takeaways at which i would say it would be trivially easy to get around that and to put in place something that stops bars from doing that but does not stop restaurants and takeaways i mean it it would not be difficult it's not like world-spanning legislation that needs to be done i'm pretty sure a solid uh solid legal professional could crank that one out in an afternoon what reason do we have to believe that the demon drink is in any is connected to the to uh, the virus, or indeed that this legislation will do anything to affect the R rate or the IFR or the whatever set of synonyms we want to use. I know we hate alcohol, and this government hates alcohol, and quite rightly so. There is no safe level of alcohol consumption. I know that's true because it's on the front page of the Alcohol Ireland's website, but. Why? Why, Gary? It's the health workers I really feel for, Michael. You know, some of those health workers out there risking their lives every day. Get get off in the night, want a glass of wine. 
Nothing. Have you ever noticed when people want to be nice, they always say a glass of wine. They never say, they never say a bottle of vodka. They want a nagging of vodka. They want a nagging to bring home with well, them. Well, you don't imagine someone with like a red breast 12 year half naked in a gutter. So I think that's kind of where you want to go with that. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen some unusual sights and gutters naked. But anyway, yeah, I suppose. Oh, it's just the usual shite. It's just all. Let's do something. Let's be proactive. Let's take a strong line. Let's stop the bastards drinking. We have. We have all of these issues that we know are problematic and we don't seem to really be struggling to fix at all. We don't seem to be doing anything on them. No, by the way, you, you left out uh, testing and tracking. Okay, but that's just not going to happen. So why bother? Yeah, but remember, we used to talk about it happening. So we, we, we abandoned that. Sorry, that's, that's part of what I meant about when I was talking about rapid tests, is that they were mostly in use during the summer when people could move around more in other countries. But they were also a core part of some of the track and trace, uh, test and trace systems, uh, usually backed up by uh, laboratory tests. And we didn't use those. We didn't build any testing system. We're not going to. It's obviously a failure. So I didn't talk about it because what is the point? I mean, even even the HSE and the government don't talk about it anymore because it is so obviously not happening that to talk about it would simply be to remind people that you said you'd do it. But again, you see, it's a cultural thing. In large, sophisticated, rich countries like Vietnam, they can do that kind of thing. But you couldn't do that here. The things here, when you said about Italy performing better than we are, and there's some reasons that would give rise to that. But this has just demonstrated the shocking ineptitude of Irish politicians and civil servants. And I would suspect it's an ineptitude that's pretty much society-wide. I think somebody was talking about this today, and I think John McGurk has commented on it, and I think he's absolutely true. One of the problems here is, say, take the issue around vaccinations and the vaccination rollout and the fact that we we don't have vaccines and we're not going to have vaccines unless something happens in the, in the near future. We're not going to have enough to to do any kind of proper rollout. Politicians in Ireland occupy office. They don't actually do things. They don't see that as their role. So they said, ah, vaccination. Well, Europe is doing that. Well, thank God. We don't have to worry about that. Europe is doing that. Ignoring the fact that the reason that Europe was doing it was because the Germans, the Italians, the French, and and the Dutch had got together to start buying vaccines because Europe was doing fuck all. And they were getting a bit worried about the fact that Europe was doing fuck all. So when... Being, having been prodded with a stick, Europe starts to do it. It starts to do it in a way which is gross and inefficient and wrong and immoral and horrible and all the usual. We discussed this already. When they were off, they were taking 300 million, they were offered 500 million by Pfizer, they said, no thanks, we're grand. When in fact they are, you know, it was mad shite. It's the usual stuff. And they say, ah, well, sure, we, we, Europe will get the vaccines for us and then we, we don't need a plan and we'll just wait and see what Denmark or somebody like that does and we'll, we'll, we'll copy them. That genuinely seems to be the case. We don't, we, is, do you have any sense that what we're seeing is a plan that has been worked on for months and honed, carefully, ready to be unleashed upon the world the moment we have the vaccines there? Is there any sense of that? Out there. If at the start of this, you and I had gone out for pints or some whiskey, and I had asked you to sketch me barest outline of a plan on the back of a crisp packet, and you had given me this, I would have fired you. <laughs> 
that's that's but again i'll say this in a democracy you get what you deserve we have elected these people we have kept them there we have allowed the systems to develop no we we get we get what we deserve as a people we allowed these people to get in we allowed the system to be built in many cases we were happy because the systems helped us and in relation to the health service if we want our people to blame we tend to be very light on the unions and let's say the nurses and the doctors and consultants who also played a key part in fucking the health service by putting their own priorities over what was actually best for the national interest and not just in relation to COVID, in relation to everything. So you get what we deserve. And what we deserve now for what we've allowed happen is exactly what we're going to get, which is massive incompetence, the collapse of thousands upon thousands of business and a great deal of debts. And we will deserve all of them. They will deserve it. I will not. But obviously not us, Michael. We, by doing this podcast, have absolved ourselves of that sin. I deserve I deserve, I deserve an Israeli level of vaccination, and I want it now. And I deserve... This is starting to become like Brexit. We had so many podcasts where we ended up talking about Brexit. And every time, I just said, I don't want to talk about Brexit again. But it would annoy me so much that I would then end up having to talk about Brexit again. But you can't. You can't not. Because I... I but we started talking about this before, and I said that when we, I was, the, was, we were talking about the Der Spiegel article, and I said to you, and I said on the podcast, I believe that this is the single greatest scandal that we've seen in the EU in my lifetime, and I really believe that. I can't think... I, think, I can't think of enough... This, this level of fuck-off incompetence, nincompoopery, where they, they don't buy... In, in July or, or in June, when the Americans are buying 1.1 billion, the, the, the English bought 340 million. No, not all of those. They want, you know, they, but they bought across six, some of which will come in, some of which won't. We're there and they're, they're not, they're taking options. They're waiting for a better price. They come along, they get 300 million. In November, Gary, now this is the thing. In November, when everybody knew, and they knew because the EMA had access to the rolling data from Pfizer, they knew that Pfizer was going where it was going well. They knew it was going to be approved. They knew that this was not a significant risk. That And Pfizer said to them, we have 500 million. We've expanded availability. Do you want them? And then they said, no. I, I will, during... When people used to talk about Finnafall and how you couldn't vote for them because of the last recession, my take on the last recession was that the last recession happened for a variety of reasons, mostly related to credit supply and some regulatory. But Finnafall didn't cause it. In the same way that builders didn't cause it, we just blamed them because it was easier than saying, actually, people went pretty mental for a while there because we could, because we were a poor country that suddenly gained access to credit at Germany's level. I never, I, I never thought it would stick because I didn't think it was their fault. So I never found the you shouldn't vote for Finnafall because of this compelling. But that did stick to them. And for nearly a decade, it was an issue for them. But this, this is constructed. This is the result of choices. There's no large systemic reason these fuck-ups had to happen. They're there because of choices that were made. Carefully considered choices. There will have been a series of committees, Gary, on this. There will have been references. There would have been documents. There would have been discussion papers. This, this is a bureau. This is a, a commission bureaucracy. This is not just ah uh, well. What I, I don't know. But we did. no. This was 
a planned and executed fuck-up. Unless they manage to somehow pull this out of the bag. And it would be great if they did. Like, it would be fantastic if they did. Fine Gael and Fine Gael should absolutely be blamed for this. And it should be held against them. And you should consider not voting for their candidates, even if they're lovely local people. Because this is a fuck-up on a scale that is hard to comprehend in the history of the Irish state. And they don't even seem bothered about it. It's like they don't realise. It's worse, worse, two things. The worst than that. First of all, it's not, when anybody questions on them, you, this nonsense you get back. Oh, well, I heard today somebody was being asked from the, the medical, from the HSC, a person working in the HSC uh, on the front line. Oh, well, you know, a vaccine rollout is a very complex thing. We want, we want to do it right. We don't want to do it. Which the obvious implication of that is all these other people are doing it wrong, Gary. Those pe- the, the people in Israel, they're doing it wrong. The people in Bahrain are doing it wrong. The people in the UK are doing it wrong. The people in fucking Italy are doing it wrong. They're, pro- they're injecting the, the, the wrong vaccine in, in, and they're putting it in the, in the wrong... I don't know. Where's the wrong part of the body to do it? I don't know. Somehow, anyway, other people are doing it wrong because we have to do it right. And it's a complicated thing. It's obviously far more complex here than it is in other countries, far more difficult here, and we have to do it right. We don't want to be quick, we want to be... No, we want to be quick and right, and that's not beyond the means. This attitude... But if they pull it out of the fire, Gary, they won't have pulled it out of the fire. And I'm saying that now because I very much hope it is pulled out of the fire, and that the problem with the supply of vaccines can be rectified when and if, for example, the Johnson & Johnson comes on stream, and they're hopeful that they're putting their data in by the say the 31st 30th 31st of january they're hoping obviously there's been rolling assessments so that if it goes in at the, in the end of january that maybe the first 10 days in february we might see approval of the johnson and johnson vaccine the cure vac cure vac is going bizarre speed i don't know how that is phase three clinical trials started on like the 21st of december i think i mean it i i it's a bit like watching a horse race where there's a, a nag has been sort of half a, half a furlong behind and suddenly as you're approaching the winning post, you're suddenly, Jesus, where did you come from? CureVac is now talking about that they're going to be, they're going to come on stream also in February. So it may be the case also that Pfizer and Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, if AstraZeneca is also approved in the next few weeks, uh, could come on stream and could bolster it. And we might see the country in a state of revolution by the, February when we see how slowly it's going and they may say okay let's just turn on the taps let's get everybody out there let's do this thing let's get the army in this might is this a silly thing to say there are what two or three thousand dentists in this country I think they could give vaccinations and I'm sure if you ask them they would there are a couple of thousand vets in the country who could give vaccinations if they this is not a complicated thing to train people there are people there we could get people who are retired out this could be done this, we know from other experiences this could be done. But it will be done on the basis of other people's achievements, other people's efforts, principally the pharma companies' capacity to provide extra supply that wasn't foreseen that will pull this out of the fire. It won't be our glorious leaders. So it, whatever happens, they, will be not, they won't be the ones that will pull it out of the fire. I will. I, there was actually just one point I wanted to mention as a side effect. Uh, the HSE had said 
Sorry, it was said, because as we said in the last one, no one seems to actually know who's running this. It was said that the vaccinations would be done on a Monday to Friday rollout, and that there would be no weekend work. And people went and looked at the HSE's records, and there was no additional scheduling of weekend or overtime work. Now the HSE has said that there will be a seven-day program, and there was never a five-day program. Now, the problem is, is that the HSE had sent documentation out to the nursing homes explaining the program, which says it's a five-day program. So that is, on the face of it, just plainly and simple, a bare-faced lie. And when I say lie, I mean lie as not in the way people use it when someone says something they disagree with. I mean a knowing misrepresentation of the truth. Intending to deceive. It is a lie. It is a lie from an organisation which really doesn't want to start lying to people at this exact point. No, that's not a good idea. Unless, of course, Jared, it was just a funny joke. I, I often send out national documentation plans as part of my jokes, but I think I'm a little bit more avant-garde than the HSE. But, the yeah, maybe, the HSE maybe the HSE is a bit of a Kafka humour monster. And what they're, going, they're now saying, ah, lads, ah, gee, Five days, five, yes, 95, five days. You thought we'd just take the weekend off? Ridiculous. Ah, come on. Really? You, you, you bought the, you Seriously? You took that serious? No! I was having, taking the piss, taking the piss. Ah, oh, come on, Lee, that's... I think that would be a more reasonable, if they want to try and spin it, that's, that's the... If I was advising them for a very large fee, and I'm willing to do that for a very large fee, then I would say that's the line I would go, nah, we were only joking. Bit of levity, lads. Times are gloomy. People need a bit of cheering up. Bit of comedy, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's fun when they say that. And then you kind of go, oh, right, because this, this draft plan that you sent out shows there's no one scheduled for uh, this weekend or next weekend. Which is weird, yeah. isn't it? Because you think, like, if people were working weekends, you'd put them on the list of people that was... You just didn't, did you? By the, I, I, I do encourage listeners... To click on the link to the graph, the the what would you call it? An, an the inf, it's an infographic, really, more than a graph. And again, this this is from the official document on the vaccine implementation plan. This is like this is the government's high bar for what is happening. This is the official document, and it is not even a chart. It's it's. I said, and it, it is, it is, it is their description of what's happening. And it's meaningless. It means nothing. There's no data in it. I can't even get angry about it because children would do better if you asked them to write a vaccine rollout plan. Children might actually ask you, it, it barely has accesses. That's what I said to you. It doesn't really have an XY axis because there are no values on it. So how can you have a graph? You can't really call it a graph when there are no values. What I really love is that they, they made the line not quite straight in parts. To give it that, you know, that feeling of reality. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just whatever it is. I, I can't even be... This is not good enough. It's obviously not good enough. But we accept it. So we deserve it. So, there you go. I don't know. On one hand, I've actually quite enjoyed the vaccine thing. Because I'm so... I'm so jaded about politics that nothing actually works me up anymore. Even if it kills people. I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's what happens. But this, like... The ineptitude shown in this is, even by Irish standards, notable. It's it's incredible. And I deeply hope they pull it together and, and something comes out of it. And you said the politicians and these people would have no impact. They could still do things that would be very positive, Michael. They won't. 
but they could. Well, I, they could, they will do it if there is a revolution. If there is a, if there is a, a mass uprising when people look at the um, the amount of what other countries are doing when they look at Italy and they look at Denmark and they look at where we are and where they're and they eventually say, ah, for fuck's sake, it's this is just this is just beyond and by the way just in reference to um, a previous conversation we've had um, the fact that CureVac is now coming online is another if you remember I said I was saying before that you know it might be a bad idea for somebody to drop over to London on the basis that uh, the UK may end up having because they said themselves they may end up having a surplus of vaccines if CureVac does come on CureVac is a UK company, I think. I think it's in Scotland. It's based in Scotland. And I know that the English... CureVac, I, uh, I think, is Danish or Dutch. Is it Danish? But I think they have a... I, they, maybe it's a... They may have a production site in Scotland, but they have something in Scotland anyway. But I know that the UK has bought quite a few CureVacs. So if that comes on in the Johnson... The, 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 the UK may genuinely have a couple of vaccines to spare. So I, I, I at the risk of... Uh, you know, being of familiar to ourselves, you know, even though the, the Brits have said, well, they're going to give it to third world countries, you know, now is the time for somebody to go over and to start, conjole, to start the cajoling process, you know, keep us in mind, lads, you know, if you do get a few extra, you have a few over, left over. Please do think of us. Actually, on the, um, I looked through the, our vaccine allocations just to see what we were getting of mm-hmm. what and so, would you like to know what, what vaccine we bought the most of? Or we have the highest allocation of at 3.3 million? Well, I don't know, but I'm going to guess on the basis that this is Ireland, uh, Sanofi. It's Sanofi. And do you know when they expect Sanofi to uh, be ready? Next year? End of this year. End of this year. Oh, and that makes all the difference. Now, we do have millions more vaccines on the assumption AstraZeneca, CureVac, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines go through the European Medicines um, Association quickly. But we still have to see. On paper, we have about 14 million vaccine doses. The problem has always been, when are we getting them? But I think we'll we'll leave that for... God, I hope we can go like a week without talking about vaccinations. Well, yeah. Also, I'd like us not to be right about this, Michael. Oh, God, yes. Oh. For all that I can't crow about us being right about the social distancing and the masks and the the issues with uh, COVID spreading through air and all of the experts being wrong, and I do enjoy that, now we've gotten to the sort of now we can actually do something about it stage. And if we're right here as well, uh, that means a lot of people die. And I'm not, you know... A big man, Michael, in these. I can be fairly petty, but I'm not that petty. No, I mean, you really, really want to be wrong. All the figures indicate we're right. And it's hard to tell what we'll aim for later, but considering that Martin has set a target of 135,000 by the end of February, either that is incredibly low so the government can blow through it and sort of go, oh, look how fantastic we are, or it's an accurate figure. And uh, in which case, it's disastrous. But anyway, we'll be back on Sunday for something happier, I think. Uh, by the way, anybody out there who has access to uh, uh, some vaccines that they're not they're not using, I mean, and I'm I'm not I'm not picky here. I'll take the the Russian one. 
Sputnik, I think it is it's called Sputnik, with uh, 90, 92% efficacy. You know, if you if you want them, I um you know, I'll I'll break I'll I'll break lockdown. If you have a fridge where you're keeping it, I'll get I'll go. So you know, get in contact if you have something there, or if you'd like to fly me out to Israel. I've never been that attached to uh, what is necessary to you know be Israeli. I'm willing to do that. But until then, mind yourselves, wash your hands, stay inside, keep the fire on, and we will talk again on Sunday. Maybe sharpen the pitchforks, just in case. Light the brands, light the brands, get the, get the mob out. All the best.